racial inclusion. It's <laughs> radical. It's radical. <laughs> Which racial inclusion is a part of. Sure, yeah. sure. Um, and I'm calling this the great Christian value. Um, and, and we know this. I've talked about this plenty of times. We've talked about this plenty of times. Christianity is not a system of beliefs. It is a way of life. Jesus is not supposed to be a model of worship. He's supposed to be a model for living. And when we can remove ourselves from the idea that Christianity is a system of beliefs and Jesus is meant to be an object of worship, we can then look with different eyes at things outside of Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, we can look at Jesus' ministry, his words, um, his actions, his commandments to his followers, etc. Um, I think after our Easter series as well, Jesus last week, I think I've been able to convincingly share that we don't really know where the historical Jesus is in that last week of his life. However, Jesus' ministry prior to that last week of his life comes from something called the Q source, the sayings of Jesus, which we know the historical Jesus uh, said. And um, I would argue that, that that part of his life should have as great of an emphasis, if not greater, than what we do with his death and resurrection. And one of the things that Jesus does time and time again is challenge his society's idea of inclusion and exclusion. Um, and, and, it, and the way I've set this handout up for all of you is that he doesn't do, this is not a one-time thing for Jesus. It's not like there's just one parable of inclusion and then a bunch of other stuff. It's pretty clear throughout his ministry. Um, I've also included Paul, and as a reminder, Paul's writings are earlier than the Gospels, closer to the historical Jesus than the Gospels ever were. Um, and Paul, uh, of his seven letters, goes throughout and is trying to build inclusive communities. Um, the Acts, which is meant to be the story of the Acts of the Apostles, the story of the church after Jesus ascends into heaven. Um, again, the, one of the things that these first followers are doing are trying to build an inclusive community um, and, and live in, in opposition of a very hierarchical society around them. Um, so what I, what I want to create here is kind of an exhaustive list for us and then have a conversation about it. Because I think being radically inclusive is something that very few of us genuinely know how to do, and I would count myself among them. It's not, even, it's not even a matter of desiring inclusive communities. It's a matter of genuinely not knowing how to do this. Um, and again, I'm, I count myself as one of those people. Um, I also wanted to have this conversation kind of um, alongside with what's going on in our town right now. And you know, I've talked before about how do you, how do you love like Jesus but fight for justice? And you know, my tagline there is you, you love the individuals, you fight against the systems. And kind of with what Lauren said, I think people get pulled in so quickly to this idea that we are at war with each other that we start attacking individuals and forget that we're supposed to be standing up against systems of, of oppression and exclusivity and hierarchy, et cetera. Um, and so 
we actually see throughout the Gospels, we see throughout Paul, we see throughout the, te the, the Acts of the Apostles, Jesus is not just inclusive of oppressed people. He's also inclusive of Romans, centurions, people of privilege. One of the bankrollers for the Jesus movement was Herod the Great's treasurer's wife, who had a substantial amount of money and power and influence. So this inclusion stretches across a spectrum of people. Um, does radical inclusion mean you include everybody? No, it doesn't. What Jesus does exclude is exclusion itself. What I think I mean by that is you invite people into an inclusive community, but also into an inclusive way of life. And if there are gonna be people who want to deny that inclusive way of life, then there are boundaries. This is not meant to include exclusion or harm or oppression, etc. cetera. Uh, but I do think it's being honest about what one's values are as a community and inviting people to participate in that. So. It's tough to talk about radical inclusion and then extend that to, well, does that mean you welcome everybody? I mean, yes, you welcome everybody, but if there are people who want to be exclusive or harmful or oppressive, then it is also healthy to develop boundaries, um, which I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself there. So I'm gonna kind of run through these. Um, ask me questions if you want. I don't expect you to have all these stories memorized. Um, you know, some of them might stand out. I'm gonna try to give you a brief synopsis um, and I've created just one line from each of these stories that kind of highlights, you know, the, 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 the oomph of it, right? Um, so I'm going to start with the Gospels. And what I've done here is try, especially with the Gospels, I've tried to include where these stories are mentioned in each Gospel. Um, you know, there's really only one where it's mentioned in one Gospel. Actually, two, Matthew and John, but I'll get to that. So um, the first one is the Great Banquet, which is a parable that Jesus tells. It's a story about a king having a banquet. His son is getting married, and he wants to have a feast, and um, invites all the appropriate people to the banquet, which is all of the higher-ups. And that would have been very common in antiquity. Uh, it's the who's who's. It's like the Met Gala, right? And all of these people have excuses as to why they can't come. And so what the king does is tell his servants to go, therefore, into the main street and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. The text is even more explicit than that. The text actually says, go out and find the slaves, the lepers, the good, the bad, um, really going down to the bottom of that social ladder and saying the people that who would never, ever, ever be allowed to come to this banquet, go out, get them, and bring them in because it is, it is to them that the kingdom of heaven belongs. Um, Jesus talks a lot about meals and banquets and stuff because these are where social hierarchies were on display in the most obvious of ways. And so Jesus has a lot of parables that use this and turns them on their head and makes them offensive. Um, one area that Jesus talks about is in explicitness. Jesus isn't just out there saying, hey, all are welcome, which is the famous church tagline, right? All are welcome. Sure. Uh, Jesus, Jesus, in his parables and his sayings, he defines what he means by all. And his methodology is to start at the outside and work your way in. A way of saying that you know all are welcome because the people at the margins are welcomed first. It's not a way of saying that the people in the center are not welcomed, but it's a way of saying that God starts on the bridges and works inward, whereas society starts in the center with the most powerful, 
claims to work outward, but really just stays concentrated right there. Um, so that's the great banquet. Jesus welcomes the little children, another famous story that a lot of us have probably heard, whether we're connected to the Bible or not. Um, Jesus is speaking to crowds, and all these little kids run up to Jesus because they want to touch him and meet him, etc., and the disciples stop him, and Jesus you know, has this line, Let the little children come to me, do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. In our society today, we think children are the epitome of an angel, uh, except for those of us who have kids. <laughs> right? In antiquity, it was the complete opposite of that. Children were considered the most insignificant of people because they had absolutely no economic value, and not only that, they were a drain on one's economic sources until they got old enough to contribute to the economy of the household. Um, mortality rates were extremely high in antiquity, and so parents were, were operating in a mindset of being prepared in case one of their kids died, and they had other kids. So children in antiquity were amongst the most insignificant of people, which makes this moment even more radically inclusive. And Jesus connects this to the kingdom of heaven. It is to such as these that the kingdom of heaven belongs. Uh, the next one is the Syrophoenician woman, which touches on purity codes of Jewish people being the in crowd and people who are not Jewish being on the outside. And the story of the Syrophoenician woman is uh, Jesus is at a banquet, again, right? A banquet with Pharisees who are used to this hierarchy. And this woman comes up wanting him to heal her daughter who has a demon. And his response, which I, I will admit is offensive, says, um, I am not here for you. Uh, I'm here for the people of Israel. Uh, the dogs are not welcome to the, what, to the feast. Um, and, and her response is, well, even the dogs get the crumbs of the, the meal after. And Jesus says, wow, your faith, what an astounding faith. Because you have said this, you may go, the demon has left your daughter. Um, yes, absolutely, that's offensive. It's also a pretty common thing in antiquity to have something like that. And that's a pretty good crumb. Yeah. Your daughter's healed. Yeah, your daughter's healed. And, and really it's because of the agency of the woman excuses for that story and say, well, you know, Jesus was blue, you know, not going to do that. But again, it is a story of inclusivity. Uh, the Samaritan woman at the well, which I did an entire unorthodox about just a few weeks ago, right? The Samaritan woman who's at the well at noontime. This is really a marriage story more than anything else. Um, Samaritans and, and Jewish people were at very extreme odds with each other uh, to the point that a couple hundred years before this, the Jewish people had gone and attacked the Samaritan capital and burned down their temple. Um, and, and this is a marriage story of the Samaritan woman representing Samaria and Jesus <coughs> representing God's kingdom, being married together and coming together. Um, the list of the apostles in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, two of the apostles that are mentioned are Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. You know, Jesus is, is creating his starting lineup, right? You don't have somebody who has been playing for the Yankees, I'm using this metaphor instead of the Dodgers because you walked in here with that hat. <laughs> I did it, especially <laughs> for you. Exactly. Someone who's been playing for the Yankees for a while and someone who's been playing for the Red Sox for a while, like in the same lineup all of a sudden, um, you just don't do that. But that's what Jesus did. Zealots were uh, um, violently opposing the Roman government. One of the areas 
is they attacked were in the tax system, of whom tax collectors were Jewish people working for the Roman Empire. Um, and then Matthew's, and, and this is kind of what I started with, so Matthew 25 is a phenomenal one. Matthew 25 is, is in our Bibles it's titled as The Last Judgment, and it's where Jesus says, you know, at the end of the age, God will gather the sheep and the goat, and he will have the sheep go onto his right hand, and the goats go onto his left hand, and, you know, the sheeps will be saved, and the goats will be thrown into, you know, unquenching fire, etc. And people say, well, who are the sheep and who are the goats? And Jesus says, well, whenever you welcomed someone who was a stranger, or clothed someone who was naked, or fed someone who was hungry, um, you are the sheep. And because you have done this to, to the least of these, you have done this to me. For those of you that have not done this, you are the goats, and you will be the ones who will be separated. Again, the one thing Jesus excludes is the practice of exclusion. Um, and, and he comes out very strict and very angry about this at times. That doesn't mean, you know, we go and attack individuals, but we do fight against system of, systems of exclusion. Yeah, right. I just want to register some umbrage about the sheep and the goat thing. Mostly because I have a vested interest in the goats. <laughs> <laughs> you guys leave my goats alone. As explained to me, it was common in those days to herd them all together in a group. Certainly sheep have their own value, but goats have a completely different value. And I never understood this. And then when I actually started raising them, I'm like, I would rather have goats. <laughs> they are decidedly more inclusive and friendly than oh, sheep, and decidedly smarter. Yeah. So, you guys are reading this. <laughs> just throwing it out yeah. there for y'all to consider. Just a reminder that, that goats and sheep are a metaphor. Please don't go kill Rob's goats. Yeah, don't kill them. <laughs> don't kill goats. And don't separate them from them. That's all I did. Um, So this is not an exhaustive list of the Gospels. These are not all the references where Jesus talks about inclusion or, or is welcoming to other people. What I really wanted to do was just let you know that it's not an isolated thing either. Um, this is a snapshot of something that is present throughout all of Jesus' ministry. So moving on to Paul, why I, I question starting with Paul, one, because Paul is earlier than the Gospels, um, but also Paul is more realistic than the Gospels. The Gospels are telling a story after the event. Paul is writing letters to established communities that he has created. Each of these letters is responding to present circumstances going on in those communities. And when we, when we look at the authentic letters of Paul, um, it, it's just more authentic. Like this is, These are real struggles that people were having 2,000 years ago, and they mirror the struggles that we're having today. Um, so Paul's letter to Philemon, uh, which is his shortest letter in our, in our Bible, um, Philemon is a slave owner and a Jesus follower. And Philemon's uh, slave, uh, Onesimus, runs away from Philemon and goes and joins Paul, who's in prison at this time. And Onesimus is also a follower of Jesus. And so Paul writes this letter to Philemon telling him, I want you to release, to free Onesimus because he is a follower of Jesus. And within Jesus' community, we are all egalitarian. 
Onesimus would not have been a Jesus follower, I don't think Paul would have written this letter. But what, what Paul is doing is differentiating the Jesus community from the larger community. Paul is saying that the larger community has a value system where slavery is accepted and where hierarchy is accepted. But if you are going to be a part of the Jesus community, our value system is very different. So we can take the value systems that we see in the Gospels and maybe say, well, that's just a story someone's telling after the fact. And what we can do with Paul is see that those value systems are actually being put into practice. And, and so Paul sends this very diplomatic letter back, and he has this, this one line that I love. Perhaps this is the reason that he, Onesimus, was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Um, Paul even tells him, like, hey, I'm not going to command you to free Onesimus, uh, because I want you to choose it for yourself. It's kind of very Godfather-like. Like, hey, I'm not going to make you do this, but I'm going to want you to do this, okay? And we actually, I don't think we really know what happens. Um, but Paul requests it because that is part of the value system of that community. Uh, the letter to the Galatians um, is where the famous line comes. There is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for all of you are one in, in Christ Jesus. Um, much, much later communities have looked at this text and said that egalitarian nature is reserved for the afterlife. When you die and go to heaven, there will no longer be Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. But here in this world, we are going to have differentiation and hierarchy, etc. And again, Paul is trying to differentiate the world's value systems from the kingdom of heaven's value systems and is very much saying if you're going to be a part of this community, it is an egalitarian community where there will not be this line of separation. Paul is also not erasing people's identities in this text. He's not saying that women no longer exist as women, men as men, Jews as Jews, Greeks as Greeks, etc. You come in with your identity still, but those identities are not um, barriers to being in an egalitarian community. Um, letter to the Corinthians, which is actually an angry letter. Paul, Paul really doesn't like the church of Corinth. Um, they are screwing up all the time. Both of his letters are, are letters of him being very angry at the Corinthians and telling them to fix their stuff. One thing that happens in this letter is they're practicing communion, um, just like we practice communion. But what's happening is they're coming together and, and, and what we know is that there are actual wealthy people gathering with poor people in this house church in Corinth. And the wealthy people are bringing uh, sumptuous food to have at dinner time. And poor people are bringing nothing because they don't have any food. And then they go on to communion and poor people are getting little sips of wine and rich people are getting drunk off the communion wine, right? Just like our good old Catholic altar boy days. Um, and Paul's angry and says, look, if, if you're not going to actually come together and feed one another, then eat dinner at home and come here because we're not gonna have a space where it's so obvious that wealthy people are different than poor people. Um, it says, for when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper and one goes hungry and another goes drunk. What a, what a line, right? I think you could use that so much today. Um, and then finally, Paul's list of leaders uh, in the letter to the Romans. He gives a list in, in Romans chapter 16 of 27 people. And these 27 people are not just some 
random leaders. These are the people that he's kind of commissioned to go out through the empire and start their own churches. These are, these are like Paul's right-hand people. And of this list of 27 people, 10 of them are women, and five of those women are singled out by name for praise, which in antiquity is not something you do with women. Paul is clearly crossing the gender boundary line of his day. And he very intentionally is inclusive of women, not just in the community, but women as leaders within this movement, um, which you just cannot stress how radical of a thing that is. Uh, again, this is not an exhaustive list of Paul. This is just a way to say that um, Paul's not doing this once. This is happening throughout his entire ministry as well. Um, yeah, no, have fun. Marcelino's going to Carrizo Plains, so oh, yeah, take allergy medication. I'm going Monday. The Acts is just one book in the Bible, and it's a very long uh, book in the Bible. I think it has 28 chapters. Um, again, I, I just wanted to give a couple snapshots. Uh, so there's one moment, and, and I love the Ethiopian eunuch story because if anyone in Christendom is going to make arguments against transgender people, the story of the Ethiopian eunuch slaps them in the face every single time. Um, so the story is that Philip is hanging out and the spirit, God's spirit, takes him to this chariot. And, in, and this, this is a wealthy chariot, but in the chariot is this Ethiopian eunuch who is a slave of the queen of Ethiopia. Which, one, means, yes, he's a slave, but two, he is a slave of status. The reason he's a, 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 a eunuch is to be a male and work with the queen, one had to be a eunuch. He had no choice in this happening to him. Um, and so Philip goes up to the chariot, and the eunuch is reading a scroll, and he says to Philip, I don't understand it. And so Philip tells him this is about Jesus and the community and blah, 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 and talks about baptism. And then the eunuch says, well, we're right next to water. What's to stop me from being baptized? And Philip says, well, you know, the spirit brought me here. So clearly this is what I'm supposed to do. So they walk down to the river and Philip baptizes him. The text says the spirit comes upon the eunuch. And then Philip is immediately picked up by the spirit and taken away somewhere else to do some other work. But it's this powerful, powerful moment where Acts is saying that God's spirit is directly involved in this moment of including uh, the eunuch in this community reason eunuchs were not included in, I mean, there's so many layers to this, but one, he's from Ethiopia. He's not part of the Jewish community, so he's outside of the Jewish community. Um, two, he is a eunuch. Now, while it would be wrong to connect eunuchs to transgender people, the reason this story responds to this is because the texts that, that Christians use against transgender people, this story is also speaking against those texts. Hmm. Uh, so within Deuteronomy and Leviticus, we have codes that say uh, men should not dress like women. Um, men should not be castrated. Uh, all of this is wrong. The reason this happens is in antiquity, um, gender boundaries were extremely, extremely strict, way more strict than they even are today. Um, it was, and, and the reason they were strict is because of the hierarchy. It was meant to highlight that men were above women. And if men dressed as women, or if men were castrated, that starts to blur the lines of that hierarchy. 
And so there were strict codes in place to preserve this hierarchy. And it is those codes that a lot of well-to-do Christians, well-to-do Christians, um, say that being transgender is wrong. Now again, you cannot connect a eunuch to a transgender person. This eunuch had absolutely no choice in what happened to them. This was something that was, this was a violent thing that was done to them. That's different than a trans person living into their God-given identity. However, as I said, this story directly contradicts any of those arguments against transgender. And not only that, but it is a story of this eunuch being welcomed into the community in a, in a human way. Philip baptizes him. Philip, a human being, is the one to do this. But then the text uses this language of the spirit. The spirit comes down and comes into the eunuch. So God blesses this moment, too. This might be actually one of the most radically inclusive stories in all of the New Testament. So that is the Ethiopian and then finally, clean and unclean foods metaphor <coughs> is a story of Peter. In the first half of the book of Acts, Peter is the main character. In the second half of the book of Acts, Paul is the main character. Peter is responsible for going to Jewish people. Paul is responsible for going to Gentiles. However, there's this moment in Acts chapter 10 where Peter has a vision and he's told to go to a Gentile house. And he's like, uh, I'm not supposed to do that, I'm a Jew. And so he goes and he's on the roof sleeping why he's on the roof, but it's a good place to take a nap, right? And while he's sleeping, he has this vision of this cloth coming down from heaven, and on the cloth are all the foods that a Jewish person is not supposed to eat, that is forbidden. And a voice, it's God's voice, comes and says, here, eat. And Peter says, no, my lips have never touched anything profane, I can't eat this. And then God comes back and says, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. And then Peter wakes up from the vision, and a group from a Roman centurion comes up and say, hey, uh, our master, a Gentile, had a vision, and, and that vision told us to come and find you and bring you to him. And so then Peter says, well, clearly this was the vision, and goes, baptizes the household. The Holy Spirit comes upon all of them, so Gentiles are also welcomed into this movement. But not just Gentiles, powerful, wealthy Gentiles. Again, not an exhaustive list of what happens in Acts, but I think those are probably the two most powerful stories of radical inclusivity. Um, the rest of the stories are, it has plenty of information about um, Gentile inclusion, inclusion of uh, poor folk, and inclusion of, of women. So tying this all together, what if these are just stories, right? What if these are just stories that we're supposed to read and feel good about? Well, they're not. We have here the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. This is not just about hearing a story of inclusion. Jesus is very intentional in his pattern of living out this inclusivity and then commanding his followers to do the same thing. This is kind of a watch and see me do, and then you go and do. Uh, and, and Matthew 28, uh, Verses 18 to 20 are the last three verses of Matthew's Gospel. So this is the last thing that Jesus says. Um, Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Um, Jesus' commandment to love. Uh, what are the two greatest commandments we hear in Matthew and in Mark? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. The story in Luke happens a little differently. It's not around the greatest commandment, but Jesus does say the same thing. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And then in Luke, a lawyer says, well, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus proceeds to tell the story of the Good Samaritan, right? 
And then John, we talked about this one during our last week series. Uh, Jesus washes the disciples' feet, this massive boundary-breaking moment, and then gives them the new commandment, love one another as I have just loved you by breaking this boundary. Uh, and then finally listed in all four Gospels, the pick up your cross and follow me. If any of you want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. This is... Um, to, to be a follower of Jesus is to follow in the way of Jesus. To follow in the way of Jesus is to hold a cross because it is tough. It is tough to be inclusive because we live in a world that has ingrained us to not be inclusive. And as we are inclusive, people look at that with offense. I think one of my quotes that I really like is, when you're coming from a place of privilege, equality feels like oppression. think that's what we're seeing right now is that people have been enjoying the the first slice of pie they get to choose the first slice of pie and now that other people are having pie we all realize that there's plenty of pie to go around for everybody it's an endless uh, endless amount of pie pumpkin pie in my opinion i love pumpkin pie you can have it pie for everybody um but this fear that like if, if you take some of my pie, there's not going to be enough pie left. Um, so this is, not, this is not a side thing. This is not a believe that Jesus is the Messiah and go to heaven. Oh, and if you have time, be welcoming to people. This is a central aspect of the Jesus movement. And, and as we see in Paul's letters, it's an aspect that people are challenged by almost immediately, that people struggle to live out. And Paul doesn't just say, hey, I know this is a struggle. You gave it your best shot. Paul writes back and says, no, you guys are screwing up. You don't, you know, and, and it's okay when we screw up, but you keep working at it. You keep working at being inclusive. You keep working at building inclusive spaces. You keep working at welcoming people who have been marginalized and oppressed, etc. Um, this is um, one of the most central aspects about being a Jesus follower or being a Christian is this radical, egalitarian, inclusive way of living out one's life. Any thoughts or questions before I move on? Yeah, yeah just, you know, I don't know, question or struggle with the idea. So why So, 
when you've got Rome, whose whole situation is based on hierarchy and exclusivity, adopts the church, its response was not to then adopt the inclusiveness of the church. It was to turn the church back into an exclusive thing. So do you believe that our communities where Christianity is lived like that? Inclusively or exclusively? Inclusively. Like, do you yeah. Think, like, say, St. Francis of Assisi or... Yeah, but I don't think St. I mean, St. Francis wasn't trying to build churches. You know, he... he no, all, a community. Yes, yes, absolutely. And they are in the historically marginalized community. So the ones on the outside where inclusiveness um, is just a given because there's no there's no one below to exclude anymore. Um, any any church of, of communities of color, churches in Latin America, um, these are churches that are are living very community oriented lives. We don't pay any attention to them though because that's not where we live. Um, but these churches do absolutely live this out. Yeah. Any other thoughts? I mean, I, 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 I'm probably gonna address some of the stuff you may be thinking, so just, okay. So why do we miss out on the message of radical inclusivity? Um, I have a couple thoughts on this. This is not something that I'm taking from a scholar. This is pretty much my own thoughts. Um, and, and then there's room for your own responses here too. So one, inclusive, as I've already said, inclusiveness has been relegated to the afterlife. We don't need to be inclusive in this life because God's going to be inclusive in the next life. God gets to judge who comes into that life, and as long as you're a believer, you can be poor, you can be a person of color, you can be rich, you can be whatever, God's going to build the inclusive community in the afterlife. So that's not something that pertains to right now. Um, inclusiveness has been relegated to believers and then right believers after that. So there are believers out there who would not include me as a believer, or any of you for that matter. Um, this ends up creating the process of then interpreting who's the right believer and who's a false believer. Um, and, 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 and I've said this before, being a believer is a modern term. Um, you were a believer in how you lived out your belief, not in what you claim your belief uh, so for anyone to say, I'm a believer in Jesus today, antiquity shines a light back on them and says, show us how that's true. And if that's not being lived out in justice, compassion, forgiveness, inclusiveness, then antiquity would say, oh, well, you're actually not a believer. You're a false prophet. Um, I th but, I, I, that brings up the verse that says, faith without works is dead. That's in the letter of James. Yeah. 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 And, and um, like, Luther hated that. Luther wanted James out of the Bible altogether, actually. <laughs> because for Luther, it's all about faith. <laughs> but that just goes to show that by the time we get to Luther, uh, faith and works had been separated, where in antiquity, they were completely cohesive things. Yeah. Um, I missed that. Why did, Luther, why did Luther not like that sentence? Luther, Luther thought it was, you were saved by grace alone. That's it. And so works was just another way, um, for, for Luther it was works righteousness. You only do works to get into heaven, so even your works are evil. Um, Luther was just so focused on afterlife stuff though that a lot of his theology is skewed because of that. So moving on, inclusiveness has been relegated to the categories within the New Testament. So I think this is a big one actually. 
When we hear these stories of Jesus welcoming the little children, Jesus healing the blind, Jesus healing lepers, etc., we take those categories and think Jesus is only focused on those categories. So not, not all of these, these, some of these categories would still be considered profane today. Um, we still look at, at uh, impoverished people with disdain, largely as a society, and we still look at people with mental illness, um, which is anyone who's possessed by a demon uh, with disdain in our society, but blind people, widows, children, the rich, I think we romanticize the poor, but we actually kind of profane the poor. Um, blind, like blind people are not a marginalized group to the extent that they were in antiquity. Widows are not a marginalized group to the extent they were in antiquity. So people can look and say, hey, I treat blind people great. <laughs> I'm doing good at this. Or, hey, I know a widow. I brought her lasagna after her husband passed away. I am nailing it. Um, <laughs> and so people overtly focus on these categories and don't realize that in antiquity, these were among the most marginalized groups. These were people that were told, God has cursed you, and that's why this has happened to you. And so if God's curse is on somebody, the rest of the town wants nothing to do with them. And those are the people that Jesus welcomes in. The task for us then is to, is to understand who among our communities today represent the blind, the widows, the children, the poor, the lepers, the demons, the wealthy, etc. And that's an ongoing task. That's why the Bible is a living and breathing thing, because this is constantly changing in our own society. This is far more about who we deem profane, right? Just like what God says to Peter, do not call profane what I have called clean. We need to understand who we as a society are profaning today and see how God um, welcomes, God declares their own divinity, their own blessedness. I should have included the Beatitudes in this list. Oh, yeah. Right? So these numbers one, two, and three, these ones are things that I, I think a lot of us could look at and change our minds about pretty quickly. We can decide to be more this life oriented. We can decide to not care about who is a right believer and who is a wrong believer. We could get rid of the believer's label altogether, I think. Um, and we can, we can decide that we are going to try individually to understand who has society deemed to be profane today. But then there's the own struggles that each of us in this room has with being inclusive as well. And I'm, I'm definitely coming from my own personal experience. Why do we miss out on the mis message of radical inclusivity? Because we have been raised in centuries upon centuries of living in segregated societies. For the most part, a lot of us have grown up with people who look like us, speak like us, live in the same economic bracket as us, have the same religious beliefs as us, genuinely don't know the difficult work of creating, sustaining, participating inclusive spaces. Creating an inclusive space is not telling people, hey, you're all welcome to come into my space. Because that then misses on the experience of people and why they don't feel safe to come into those spaces. Um, it misses out on why we have segregated spaces to begin with. And it makes it their fault because we invited them, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, it's, it's not understanding that there are, there are differences in values within segregated communities. And being inclusive is not expecting people to leave their values and come into your values, but finding a way to respectfully understand and experience their values and create bridges within. Uh, a huge part of this is that well-to-do people who want to live in inclusive spaces also want to be in power as they create those inclusive spaces mm. and don't want to give up their power. And really what it comes down to in inclusive space building is relinquishing one's own power and, and respecting the power and autonomy of other groups and trying to um, experience that for yourself and build trust and relationship so that people know you're not there to take their values away from them. Um, when you think of, of uh, indigenous populations here in California, right? Or in uh, Latin America and Mexico, um, people with a whole separate value system came over here and immediately said, your value system is demonic and we are going to forcefully implant our value system onto you, whether you like it and that has been living on from that point all the way until this point. So not only is in building inclusive spaces incredibly difficult, we genuinely don't know how to do it. And, and, and that is a long and intentional process of understanding it, working through it, screwing up and apologizing and not letting your ego get in the way and continuing on. Yeah, Steve. Yeah. <coughs> I think it works the other way too. How do we make ourselves available to be invited into a community that we're not familiar with? How do we exercise curiosity and humility in our friendships and connections in a way that they're not, we're not inviting them in? We're not inviting someone in that lives differently than we. Uh, there's a mutuality of invitation, and I think that that's available to all of us if we simply. Um, are curious and humble about our own way of life. Particularly around, I think, sexuality and poverty. I think it's interesting too, just coming home after spending some time in Mexico, but from previous travel too, you see a lot of um, community gathering in public spaces. So all the parks, the Hardines, the, you know, they're packed with people um, every evening from all walks of life, coming together in community in a public space. Here you don't see that. Everyone's in their own homes, in their little bubbles. They don't even know their neighbors. Certainly the parks are barren, uh, you know, around that time here in town even our most beautiful parks. Um, so, you know, it's interesting to see um, just the public spaces being used and really, you know, being inclusive of kind of all walks of life um, in those spaces. Yeah, so it's just like an immediate value there. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's interesting. I think it's our individualistic um. way of life here versus community way of life. Yeah. And community way of life I feel like values and holds the community yeah. rather than yeah. what we're used to. 
Well, and there's like unwritten strict neighbor codes in communities like this, where mm -hmm. you, like if your neighbor's going through something, there are just strict codes in how you respond to that. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have that here. We have the opposite of that, actually. Like, mm -hmm. oh, your neighbor's loved one just died? Like, I'm gonna give them space to grieve. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, and man, that's ubiquitous. That's the whole country. Our whole country lives in a segregated way. Mm -hmm. um, if I think also that People in power tend to think that they have all the gifts to offer, mm -hmm. and in Without fact, doubt. they don't. Mm -hmm. That the people who are different than me have gifts to offer me that I should seek out, that I will find mm -hmm. um, very valuable. Yeah. Um, you know, it's that Walt Whitman quote, like, um, you know, be curious, not judgmental. Um, what is this community, what is the life of, of this community? What is it that, that brings people together, that supports each other? I mean, I think I've shared this before as a chaplain. I would go in to a hospital room where a white family's loved one just died. It was stoic and quiet, and people thanked me and went on. And then I went into a room where it was a community of color, and the room was standing room only. People were wailing. It was like second and third cousins were there wailing. Um, it, it's just such a different cultural experience. And I felt every time lost in those spaces because it's not my cultural understanding. And yet at the same time, I could say there's something far more healthy about what's going on here than what I've experienced in, in, in spaces of white people going through grief as well. So those are my thoughts, your own responses. Well, why do we miss on the message of radical inclusivity or anything else about the topic for today? I mean, I think you, you hit on it. I mean, it's because the way we've been raised, in a sense, the way um, socially society has evolved, I mean, through the centuries. And, and it's also comfortable to be around a community that you know. I mean, there's a comfort level there. I mean, you've got to step out of your comfort zone to walk into the ghetto and say, hey, how you doing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I don't recommend anyone walking into a space uh, neighborhood with a different culture than your own and just like, hey, I'd like to come to your party. Right, <laughs> right. Um, there is a space of, of invitation, etc. Um, Actually, I, I will make it, interrupt you and make another point about that. I had a business in Mexico for about 10 years and um, one of the things that I always found interesting about going to uh, places in Mexico is that um, I could be the only gringo in a place in Mexico, whether it's a restaurant, whether I walked into a church, a park, whatever it was, and, um, and I never felt at a place. I mean, I never felt people were staring at me or what are you doing here or anything else. And it still bothers the hell out of me that that's not the case here. Well, so Lauren was just, Lauren just came out yeah. three weeks in central Mexico and Sharice was there for the first week and their oldest, Shadden, I'm telling your story, I apologize, was like worried because uh, Sharice was saying everybody kept staring at him. Like, why, why is everybody staring at me? And I think, as he said, it was from a space of welcome and curiosity and not like. Yeah, know, right. You know, yeah. Did I tell that story okay? Yeah. Did I tell your story okay? Yeah. <laughs> Stories. It's like Shadden stirred me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, real quick, I'm going to say, I think there's. As, as we're hearing this, there's one other that I would add now that I, we've gone through this, and it's this very new phenomenon, I think, of taking 
and this kind of goes back to what Lauren was saying at the very beginning of today, taking this like social media and news media message that is being given to us of we are in a space of us versus them, taking and it's done on a national, ambiguous kind of a way, taking that and then immediately applying it to individuals in our own communities is, I think, something happening throughout the entire country, um, which is a, you know, a huge barrier to inclusivity. Um, and, and by no means am I saying, hey, we need to go and just have peace for the sake of peace and welcome harm, harming individuals. Um, but what I am saying is that on an one-to-one -one basis, we can probably connect with a person a lot easier if we weren't placing upon them this thing that is being fed to them, that they represent something different than us, ideologically and philosophically and religiously, so they are them. That makes sense. David. Uh, I was saying, I think what you're saying is 100% right, where it's uh, it's kind of beat into you. It's, I think it's, it's natural to be super tribalistic. That's pretty evolutionary ingrained into us, right? So you're always nervous about something that's different than you. Mm -hmm. you see a challenge so quickly it's not it's not like jesus says this and they do it well for a hundred years and then no it's immediately it becomes difficult to do because mm -hmm. of that that natural inclination and it's for safety reasons to yeah. gather amongst your own yeah lisa had lisa. i was just going to say that we do something in this valley um that i've loved since i got here and that's the ecumenical thanksgiving service but the last couple of years well actually this year we didn't have it for a couple of years but this past year um, it, it brought up something that that I really didn't think was an issue, and that was you know we were trying to include as many of the you know religious faiths and whatever um, of, the, of the valley. But the one the one that was always lacking was the Shumash community, who are actually the oldest established community in this valley before anybody else was here. The Shumash are here, so I I really felt how strongly that they're participation in this event, you know, was, was um, mandatory. I mean, it was like, you know, they need to be a part of it. But they were hesitant. And for, for who knows exactly what their reasons were, but there's this, I think there's this feeling that from their, from their point of view that that service is, again, you know, the hierarchy of, you know, the white presence in this valley you know, is, a, is a control of that experience. And I wanted to 
part of that experience. And, um, you know, I wanted to play something on the flute or whatever. And um, there was a feeling that they would respect that because it wasn't them presenting it. For sure. So, you know, there's that, that yeah. where, you're, where you're really trying to be, you know, crossing, crossing yeah. the boundaries yeah. and whatever and inclusive and all that. Yeah. But you have to take in mind what their perspective is on it might be as well, and how you know, uncomfortable they might be being a part of that too. So that, that's, that's the challenge, I think, sometimes. It is, and, and everyone's going to screw up in that process at yeah. some point, especially people coming from a place of power. Like, we're going to screw up and, and have to resist our own urge of like becoming defensive when we do, and just yeah. being open to um, growing and learning how. Yeah. And, I, and I will say, as far as Chumash, in, in my time here, as far as Chumash involvement in Interfaith Thanksgiving, it's been scheduling conflicts and not yeah. um, personal desire to not be involved. But yeah. the Chumash have their own um, celebrations and festivities of Thanksgiving, and it's it's been difficult. To, yeah. yeah. Anybody else? Oh, yeah, right, we'll see.